You know, throughout my lifetime, I have asked the same question, but not always with the same meaning. I've asked this question many times. Maybe you have too. The question is, is this the end? Is this the end? And I may have asked that question a little differently, maybe in a different format from time to time. I may have asked it like this. Are we there yet? Is this over yet? But it's basically the same question. I'm asking, is this the end of whatever it is that I am experiencing? Have you ever asked that question? Sometimes I'm asking it because what I am experiencing is very pleasant and I don't uh, I don't want it to end, and then there's times when what I'm experiencing is unpleasant. I'm just waiting for it to be over. When we traveled out west when I was a kid, I think I was around 12 years old, something like that, and we were in a, uh, a four-door sedan, no air conditioning, the entire way across the country. And uh, more than once, we asked the question, my sister and I, are we there yet, right? This was in the days before digital entertainment. Kids today have no idea what mind-numbing boredom really is. You have no clue. And so I asked the question, are we there yet? Is this the end of this trip? Maybe it was an uncomfortable situation, and I'm wondering, is this over is this six-hour recital that my kid has five minutes in, is it done yet? But there's other things in life that I, uh, I didn't want to end, right? You, uh, we, when we go on vacation to the beach, at the end of that week, it's like, man, is it over already? Is this the end already? When we go to Camp Manawagon, especially when you're a kid, when you go to camp, it's like the end of the week comes, and is it over already? Is it... Is it the end already? And I'm sure you've asked the same kind of question before. Is this, is this the end? But there's been times in our lives, too, and I think this past year would probably be one of them, where we've wondered, is this the end? You know what I mean by that? Is this the end? Are we approaching the end of the world? When believers ask that question, what we are wondering is, is the return of Jesus coming soon? That's usually what we're really asking. When an unbeliever, someone who does not follow Jesus, asks that question, they're typically wondering about things like global warming or uh, a nuclear strike, some other existential threat that they are concerned about. It's not a new question. Is this the end is a question that's been around for a long, long time. The believers in Thessalonica were wondering the answer to this question. If you would join me back in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, if you are wondering, is this close to the end of this series in Thessalonians? The answer is, yeah, we're getting close to the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me read you these first three verses. Concerning... How and when all this will happen. Let me pause. If you weren't here with us last week, this might not make sense. What he's talking about. If you were, just a reminder. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is what we studied last week. As Paul described to us, he revealed to us the mystery that Jesus revealed to him about the resurrection of the saints, about what we this event in the future that we call the rapture. So that was what he just described in that section just prior to verse 1 of chapter 5. And so 
He's saying concerning the how and the when, all of this, this rapture, this resurrection will happen. Dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. Hmm. Why not? We must have already given them some information when he was there with them. Verse 2, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief at night. I want to throw in verse 3 with this. When people are saying everything is peaceful, everything is secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. He'd already told them the mystery of the rapture would happen suddenly, that it would be a surprise. When the world is so focused on peace and safety, peace and safety without warning, the church of Jesus Christ will be removed from the planet. That event will create worldwide chaos and panic, making it possible for the Antichrist to rise to power. And I think the reason why Paul tells them there's no need to write to you about times and dates and seasons is because that information about the when specifically has not been revealed. It could happen at any time. We see that in a number of places throughout Scripture that the, the rapture, the, the appearance of Jesus in the air, the resurrection of the saints could happen at any time. So They already had that information, but apparently someone had come along after Paul had to leave the city and convinced them that they had missed it. They missed the rapture. That's what they thought. Someone convinced them that they were living in the tribulation period. And they were wondering to themselves, is this the end? In the second letter, go to the second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet Him. Talked about that last week. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for the, that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. Paul said, you guys didn't miss the rapture. Relax, you didn't miss it. You're not living in the tribulation. That's just fake news. Now, to be fair, you think, well, how did they, how did they misunderstand that? How did they... Uh, how did they not really see that? The Roman Empire was an authoritarian government. And the emperors at that time, they demanded that people worship them as a god. Persecution of Jesus' followers was really bad. People were, were marginalized. They were rejected. Christians were, uh, their businesses would have been boycotted. They would lose their jobs, sometimes their homes. Sometimes they were arrested in this case, there were even people that were killed for the sake of Jesus. So it's not surprising that it didn't take much to convince them that they were living in the tribulation. 
Because it's going to look a lot like that. What they were experiencing, the tribulation is going to look a lot like that, just on a global scale. But as bad as things were in Thessalonica, it was not yet the end. I want to pause and just uh, say if the terms that I'm using this morning, terms like Antichrist and, and tribulation, terms like the rapture, if those if those words, those terms uh, are ones that you are unfamiliar with, um, my suggestion would be that you go back to our website this week. I did a series a while ago called The End. And we walked through all of these different things and, and laid out the terminology, I think, fairly clearly. So if, uh, if what we're talking about today is not completely clear, I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible. But uh, go back to the website, and I, I put it back up on there. It's called The End. You just click on that button. You can go back and watch some of those sermons this week. What I'd like to do this morning is walk through fairly quickly the future events section of this letter. Number one, because we've already covered it uh, not that long ago. But two, because as I read through these two letters... It seems as though Paul wants to redirect their attention away from this question of when, and he wants them to focus on uh, not trying to figure out when the end will come, but rather how is the end, that knowledge that the end is coming, how is that understanding supposed to impact their, their lives that day, in that moment? And I think it's a really good question for us to ask ourselves today. I think it's very practical for us to think about how do we live in light of the knowledge and the understanding that Jesus is coming back. How do we live in response to that today in 2021? If you ever find yourself feeling like they did, feeling unsettled, feeling alarmed by what we are experiencing in the world today, if you ever find yourself wondering, is this the end? I would first remind you that the rapture is this sudden surprise event that could happen at any time. So there's no need for us to try to figure out specifically when it's coming. It'll happen when God says it is time. Our focus as followers of Christ needs to be on how do you and I live in light of that knowledge. We know it's going to happen. But how do we live in response to that understanding today? I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe. He says, The purpose of prophecy is not so we can set our calendars, but so we can build our character. I love that. It's a great reminder. And that's what I hope you're going to walk away with this morning. I hope that you will leave here this morning challenged to, to live every day like you really do expect Jesus to return. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it says this, with all these things in mind, with what things in mind? Well, in chapter 2, he talks about uh, the Antichrist and all the things the Antichrist is going to do in the tribulation, so he focuses in on that. And he's already come on the tales of the first letter when he talks about the rapture. So he's in, in, in that statement, in light of all of these things, as you think about this future event, as you think about Jesus returning, and he's talking to believers, talking to followers of Christ. He says this, stand firm and keep a strong grip 
on the teaching that we passed on to you, both in person while he was there for four to six weeks, and these letters that he's writing them. Stand firm in your faith and keep a strong grip on the Word of God. Jesus is coming back and he's challenging them to live a life of expectancy. To live a life like you really expect, that you really believe that that's going to happen. Now, that's probably not the first time you've heard that challenge. I'm sure if you've been in church for any number of years, you've heard someone at some point, some preacher, give that challenge. To live like you really believe that Jesus is coming back. And I don't know if you've thought through that deeply uh, of what that actually means. It sounds good. It sounds very spiritual. But I wonder if you've ever thought about what it actually looks like to live every day like we truly believe that Jesus is coming back. Not that we just believe it uh, like we, uh, we believe a certain set of facts. Yeah, it's going to happen. But do we live a life of expectancy? What's that look like? What's it mean? Does it mean that we, that we sell everything that we own, put on a burlap sack, go to the top of a mountain and just stare into the sky? No, that's what cults do. <laughs> that's not what Jesus called us to do. Living like we expect Jesus to return means that we're not just ready to go to heaven, we're ready to meet Jesus. And those are two different things. Let me say that again. It means that we're not just ready to go to heaven. It means that we are ready to meet Jesus. This verse is on the screen for you. Watch it with me here. 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, addressing the believer, continue in him. In who? In Christ. Continue to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ, to follow him, uh, to be obedient to him. To, to live in the power of His Spirit. All throughout the New Testament, as it's defined for us what it means to live in Christ, it means that, that we're living a Jesus-centered life. And He's challenging us to continue to do that. Why? So that when He appears, we just talked about this, what that means, we may be, don't miss these two words, confident and unashamed so that we will be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming when we stand face to face with Jesus. Well, that, in, that directly implies that there will be some Christians who will be ashamed when they meet Jesus. They're ready for heaven. That's not the issue. They're ready for heaven. They've trusted Jesus Christ as their forgiver of sin, as their Savior from hell. They believe that, the, that uh, the death of Jesus on the cross was sufficient to, to pay their sin debt. They believe in the power of the resurrection to give them brand new life, eternal life. They're ready for heaven. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are ready to meet Jesus. What would that look like? Well, maybe it's unrepentant sin in their lives. Maybe there are choices and priorities or, or pursuit of desires that, that do not fall in line with God's will or God's standards. And that results in shame when Jesus comes back. Living like we expect Jesus to return means that we're not just ready to go to heaven, but we are ready 
to meet Jesus. So that's what I want to focus in. What does it look like? What's it actually mean for us to be confident and unashamed to meet Jesus? Because that's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. I hope that's what you want for yourself. As we walk through, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to walk through this next section of verses with you and kind of break it down because there's some basic things here that show us what, uh, how we can be confident, how we can know that we can be unashamed when we meet Jesus, when He returns. The first most basic thing that we see in verses 4 and 5 is to not live life like an unbeliever who has no idea has no awareness that Jesus is coming back, has no idea that the tribulation is coming. Verse 4, you, who's he talking about? Who's he talking to? He's addressing the believer. You are not in the dark about these things. Yeah, we don't know exactly when it will happen, but we know it's coming. You won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Not in the sense that we know the day and the hour, but we're not shocked because we know that it's going to happen. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. We spend a lot of time and money and energy with early warning technology when it comes to weather-related things like uh, tsunamis and hurricanes, hopefully to give enough warning that uh, people can evacuate before, before tragedy. And uh, I don't think we have quite as good a technology when it comes to earthquakes. I know they're working on those kind of things. They have some, some of that stuff. But take an earthquake, for example. If there are some people who know that an earthquake is coming, and there's another group of people that do not know that an earthquake is coming, would you expect that those two groups of people would live their lives differently? Would you expect that those two groups of people would make different choices throughout the day if the earthquake was coming and one group knew it and the other group didn't? You would expect that their lives would look different. So why would someone who truly believes that Jesus is coming back live like someone who has no clue that Jesus is coming back? Or someone who doesn't care that Jesus is or isn't coming back? Why would their lives look the same? Paul says they shouldn't. Because you, as believers, as followers of Christ, you know it's coming. And your life should reflect that. My life should reflect that. He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7 that we should be on our guard. We should not be asleep like the others. We should stay alert. We should stay clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But we're supposed to be clear-headed. We're supposed to be alert and awake and self-controlled. That verse that we read in, in the second letter said that we are to stand firm in our faith, that we are to hold on tightly to what we know to be true in the Word of God and to live that out, to live what we say we believe. I think it's important to recognize the reality that we all fail. You fail, I fail, we all do. 
we don't always get it right every time. And I've also noticed this throughout however many years I've been in ministry and just in life in general as a, as a follower of Christ. We also, even when we do get it right, we have this tendency to allow uh, pride to, to distort uh, when we do get it right and, and we start to feel good about ourselves in, in not, a, not in a spiritual way, but in a prideful way. And we have this tendency to maybe look down on the stinkers that don't get it right. And we did. Not every time, but we have this tendency sometimes to do that, to feel prideful when we do it, get it right. But living like we really believe that Jesus is coming back, what it looks like to, uh, to, to go through life actually believing that one day that we will stand before Jesus and we will listen to him review our lives. What that means is when we do fail, and we all do, that we don't make excuses for ourselves. We don't rationalize it and say, well, here, it's okay for me because you fill in the blank. No, we just repent. We recognize that we fell short. We admit that we fell short of God's standard. We confess that. We ask for forgiveness for that. And we ask the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we don't repeat it again. That's what it looks like to live a life of expectancy that Jesus is really coming back and we're going to stand face to face to him with him one day. Third most basic thing in verses 8 and 10, is to clothe ourselves, and he describes faith, love, and hope. Check it out. He says in verse 8, but uh, let us live in the light, be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out His anger or His wrath on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when He returns, we can live with Him forever. Clothe yourselves in faith, love, and the hope of our salvation. I love this metaphor that Paul uses of putting on faith, hope, and love like it is battle gear. Right? He, he talks about uh, this helmet and, and uh, guarding ourselves in this protection of faith, hope, and love. I love that. And, and I, I hope that when you read there, you immediately thought, well, what battles are we going to fight with faith, hope, and love? Is that, is that what he's telling us? We've got to fight battles with faith, hope, and love? Well, yeah. The ones, the battles in life that really matter are fought with and won through faith, hope, and love. The battles for your heart your heart's desires, the battles that are fought for our mind and the things that we think and the attitudes that we have, the battles that are fought over our priorities and our values, our passions, the battles that are fought over our relationships. Those are the battles in life that really matter, and they are fought with faith, hope, and love. I, I love this, this battle gear metaphor because it reminds me that I have to take my spiritual life seriously. When you think in terms of battle, uh, when you think in terms of war, that's not something in the physical realm that I've experienced, but uh, I, I've, I've seen uh, 
footage of war. I've, I've talked to those who have been in war. It's a serious thing. I remember my dad telling me when he was drafted during the Vietnam War, uh, you know, he grew up hunting. And uh, so he was, he got a, a pin or an award or whatever you call it uh, for marksmanship. He was a pretty good shot. But I remember him telling me that when he was going through basic training, that was not something that he took casually. That was something that he took very seriously. And the reason he took it very seriously is because he knew where this was going, to a place of war. And he had better be good at doing that. This battle gear metaphor reminds me that these spiritual battles matter and they're serious and I need to take them seriously. It reminds me that if I'm not prepared, I could get wounded. Someone else could get hurt. If I'm not spiritually prepared with faith, hope, and love. It reminds me that I need to be intentional about my life, that I need to be mission ready about my choices in life, that I can't just be passively floating through life. Jesus gave us a mission to make disciples, to help people live a Jesus-centered life. We need to be mission-ready every day, not just float through life. It reminds me, this battle gear metaphor reminds me that I'm part of an army. Despite what we've seen in, in the Rambo movies, in those awesome Chuck Norris movies that we love, You know, those guys in the movies, they fight entire armies, one guy, and they win, right? That's not how real life works. In real life, battles are, are fought and they are won together with other warriors. It reminds me that I have, not only do I enjoy and, and benefit from fighting these battles with other warriors, like that's a personal benefit that I get of being part of a church family, but it also reminds me that I have a responsibility to you. It reminds me that I'm part of a regiment, and I've got a responsibility to the other warriors in my regiment. I have no idea if, if we are at the end of the pandemic. kind of feels like maybe we're getting there. I don't know. But I do know that we are not meant to be isolated from other believers. I am thankful that we have been able to minister to shut-ins. I am thankful for that. But I do not believe that quarantine is supposed to be a lifestyle. Private worship is great. I hope that every one of us is involved in private worship throughout the week. That's important. But part of living a Jesus-centered life is learning how to love my church family. And we cannot do that when we don't gather together. When I read 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it says, So encourage each other with these words. When I go over to verse 11 of chapter 5, so encourage each other, build each other up just as you are already doing. Remember the context in which this was written and to whom it was written. 
living for Jesus, for these believers that this was written to, was not easy. Gathering together was not easy for them. In fact, it was quite risky, potentially dangerous. But they figured it out. Because they were called to encourage each other. They were called to build each other up, not isolate themselves from one another. If your view of what we are doing and what this is, if, if your view of what we're doing right now is an observation of a performance, if that's what you think this is, then you're missing it. You don't understand what this is. We are not gathered together for a political rally. We're not gathered together for a sporting event. We're not gathered together to observe a concert together. We're gathered together because we are the bride of Christ. And we are called to learn how to love each other. I understand it's easier to do your own thing, to get up whenever you want, to watch the show in your PJs, to not have to deal with the weirdos that sit near you, to not have an awkward conversation. I get that. But part of our spiritual maturity, part of what reveals that the gospel is actually true is what we do with one another. What does it say about the gospel when people who would never be friends in any other context gather together and they worship Jesus together, they have fellowship with one another, they learn how to love each other, says the gospel is true. What does it say about our faith if we avoid our church family? I love Jesus, I just don't love his bride. That's what it says. Living like we expect Jesus to return means that we're not just ready for heaven, it means that we are ready to meet Jesus. The end is coming someday. Jesus is going to come back. He is going to rescue his church. And the one that Paul refers to as the man of lawlessness, as John refers to as the Antichrist, will one day rise to power. He will make a seven-year covenant with Israel. He will promise to protect her. He will permit the rebuilding of the temple, and the signing of that covenant will begin the countdown to the end. Three and a half years later, he will break that covenant. He will desecrate the temple. He will set himself up as God. He will demand that the world worship him. And he will take total control of the economic system People will not be able to buy or sell 
without taking his mark on them. And during that time, 144,000 Jews will trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. They will lead multitudes to faith in Jesus, and the persecution against them will be violent and unrelenting. Not only that, but God's wrath upon the nations will be spilled out in ways that modern movies can only pretend to capture on the screen. At the end of that seven years, Jesus will return to the earth. He will defeat Satan and the Antichrist and all who oppose him at the battle of Armageddon and establish a thousand-year reign of his kingdom on the earth. At the end of that thousand-year reign, there will be a final judgment, the final separation of those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and they will be separated into eternal torment. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will experience eternal glory in the new heaven and the new earth forever. At that time, we will finally be able to answer the question, is this the end? With a resounding yes, this is it. My hope, my prayer is that you are ready for heaven, that you are ready for the rapture. You don't want to be here for the tribulation. And there's only one way to know for sure that you are ready for heaven, that you are ready for when Jesus returns and calls his church home. There's only one way, in faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, to forgive you of your sin, to make you right with God, to give you eternal life, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And if you haven't taken that step of faith, my prayer is, my hope is that you will do that before you leave this place. If you have any questions, something that doesn't make sense, uh, any, anything at all that you just want to have a conversation about the gospel so you really understand it, please reach out to me or one of the other pastors. Talk to a friend that might be in this room right now that you know trust Jesus as their Savior. They would love to have that conversation. I know a lot of you personally, I've known many of you for many, many years. I know that many of you in the room, you're ready for heaven. And the question that I think we need to wrestle with, yes, I'm ready for heaven, but am I ready to meet Jesus? Because those are two different questions. Are you living every day like you actually believe that he's coming back? Are you living like you really believe that one day you will stand face to face with Jesus and have a conversation about your life? And when that day comes, do you want to be confident and unashamed? I do. I want to be confident and unashamed when that day comes. I want that for you. I hope that's what you want for yourself. Living like we expect Jesus to return means we're not just ready to go to heaven. It means that we are ready to meet Jesus. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Lord, thank you so much.